Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk, without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Hearken diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in fatness. Incline your ear, and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David." My own sense of things is that the Lord is moving among us at Bethlehem in some fresh ways, especially in this area of boldness in personal witness to neighbors and acquaintances and family members and business associates and fellow students. For many of us, it's kind of a new venture and power is beginning to flow. So when I came back from vacation a couple of weeks ago, I had... Three goals rambling around in my head with regard to preaching in August, July and August. One, I wanted to stoke these flames that I sense flickering with the Word. Two, I wanted to get into the Old Testament because I had felt it was time to go back and hear the Word of the Lord from the Old Testament for a while. Three, I felt constrained to do some continuous exposition in a a longer passage rather than picking a verse here and there to talk about. Putting all that together in praying and reading, I felt very strongly led to Isaiah 55. And so I'm going to preach through this chapter in five messages and call it The Great Invitation, which it happens to be called in my Revised Standard Version in the little margin. That's a good title for it. The Great Invitation. And the first point that I want to make is that God is a very, very inviting God. And that word inviting has a double meaning, doesn't it? Two meanings. It can be an adjective. You say, uh, that place is very inviting, meaning it's pleasant, it's attractive, it draws you there. Or you can say... Uh, Tom is inviting me to his house on Thursday. It's a verb. And it means that uh, there's something special going on at Tom's house, and he gives me an invitation to come. And my point today is God is inviting in both ways. And I don't know of any text in the Bible that more lavishly lays out the inviting character of God like these three verses at the beginning of Isaiah 55. But before we get into these luscious verses, let's go back a couple of chapters. If you got your Bibles open, why don't you flip a couple of pages back to Isaiah 53, and I want to try to put 55 in context by starting back there and bringing you through 53, 54 and into 55 so that you'll sense what Isaiah is up to in this invitation. Now, 53 is a much more famous chapter, isn't it? Um, This is one of the most amazing chapters in all the Bible because 700 years before it happens, 
God, through His servant Isaiah, in incredible detail, describes the sin-bearing, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. And if any of you is skeptics here today, you know, you're on the outside of Christianity, and you're just not sure whether to credit the Word of Christ or the Bible, I just commend to you, seriously consider whether or not you would want to face God on the judgment day and hear Him say, well, how did you explain Isaiah 53? I mean, this everybody knows this was written 700 years before Christ. Everybody knows certain historical facts about Christ, whether the Bible is completely true or not. And if you put these two things beside each other, what was your explanation? Now, I just say that by way of parenthesis because I think that's one of dozens of things the Lord will say to unbelievers on the judgment day that are, on the face of it, good reasons for why they should seriously consider the truth of Christianity. I just want to show you from Isaiah 53 the sin-bearing, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Let's read verses 4 to 6. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that made us whole. And by His stripes or with His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to His own way and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Now, there is the most glorious description of the sin-bearing work of the servant of the Lord, the Christ, the Messiah, whom we know to be Jesus. Now, now let's go to verse 8 and look at his dying with those sins on his back. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living. There's his death. Stricken for the transgression of my people. So he didn't die because of his own sin. He died because he was oppressed and judged with other people's sins. Now, resurrection. Have you stumbled over those texts in the New Testament where Jesus sort of wraps the knuckles of the disciples because they should have known He was going to rise from the dead? Didn't they read their Bibles? And we kind of scratch our head, where? Where in the Old Testament does the resurrection get talked about? Or you read 1 Corinthians 15 and it says uh, He died and was buried and rose according to the Scriptures. And you say, well, where? Well, I'll just show you one place here in this chapter. There are several verses that make it plain. This suffering servant who has just died with the sins of the people on his back for their sake is not dead anymore. Look at verse 12. Therefore I, this is God talking, therefore I will divide with him a portion with the great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Now, do you see that? Reading it backwards, it goes like this. Because he was willing to be numbered with sinners and to die for sinners, God is going to reward him with life and divide the spoil that he has won by his victory over death and sin. He's going to be alive. He's alive. He's alive today. 
The resurrection is not just a New Testament teaching. It's here in Isaiah 53. Jesus thought the Pharisees and his own disciples should have seen it. We should certainly see it with the empty tomb witnessing to the resurrection of Jesus so loud that nobody in Jerusalem could gainsay it. He reigns. He lives today. He's coming again. He will hold everybody in this room accountable to answer to arguments like these. So what we've seen now in Isaiah 53 is this. We have seen a Messiah who bears the sins of His people, who dies for those sinners, who rises to life and is given uh, a coronation by His Father where He divides the spoil of the victory He has wrought in His dying and His rising. A great foundation for everything glorious that's coming in the rest of Isaiah. So let's go to Isaiah 54. In Isaiah 54, what you have spelled out are some of the blessings that come to the people of God having been redeemed by the servant in chapter 53. And I only want to focus on one of those blessings because it helps get us ready for chapter 55. And I'm going to let William Carey introduce this for us. You remember William Carey, the father of modern missions? Uh, May 31st, 1792. William Carey is in a little meeting with other Baptist pastors in Nottingham, England, and he's preaching, and his text is taken from two verses from Isaiah 54, namely, verses 2 and 3. Now, before I read them with you, I want to tell you what, what he said they meant, and then we'll read them, and you can see if you agree. He said to these stodgy old Baptist pastors who were so Calvinistic, they didn't believe in missions, which I can say, being a Calvinist, these guys were so hyper in their Calvinism, they didn't believe in missions. Crazy. Well, Carey had been touched by the Spirit of God. He stands up to preach to these guys, and he says, Look, the intention of God on the basis of the finished work of the crucified Son of God is that all the nations be reached and gathered into the kingdom. And then he read this. Enlarge the place of your tent. This is verse 2. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. We would say, add rooms to your houses. Hold not back. Lengthen your cords. These are tent cords because the tent's getting bigger. Lengthen your or strengthen your stakes. They've got to be strong because the tent's getting so big. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. Your descendants shall possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Now, I don't think that means judgment upon the nations here. Because in chapter 5, verse 22, it says, uh, Look to him and be saved all the ends of the earth. And we're moving right into a gospel invitation. So sandwiched between Isaiah 53 and 55, you have a text like this, and Carrie, I think, is justified in saying what God wants to communicate, having described the, the sin-bearing work of His Son, is that He means for that sin-bearing work to be told about everywhere and for people in all tongues and tribes and nations to be gathered under the tent of the redeemed. And it's going to be big. And anybody who tries to keep the saving work of Jesus Christ for ourselves not share it with Minneapolis, not send it to the hidden peoples, probably doesn't know it, probably hasn't had it. Now, 
Isn't this a natural lead-in then to chapter 55, which is the great invitation to everybody? And I want to ask three questions about these first three verses of Isaiah 55. Here are the questions. One, who is invited? Number two, what are they offered? Number three, what are they told to do in order to get it? Who, what are they offered, what should they do in order to get it? So let's take those one at a time. Who are invited in these three verses? And the answer is two kinds of people. Verse 1 describes one kind of person. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. So here's the way I would describe the first candidate for this invitation. A person who's thirsty, broke, bankrupt, no resources, no money, no strength, barren, on the brink of dying in Death Valley, unfulfilled, frustrated, dead-end streets, no hopes. It's all over. Just a little flicker left called thirst. That's the first candidate. You're in that category this morning? God is talking to you when He invites to His banquet table. Thirsty and broke. Spiritually broke. Nothing with which to bargain. No posturing. No prestige. No pull with God. Nothing to offer. You're invited. Second kind of person is described in verse 2. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Now, the reason I think this is another kind of person, notice in verse 1 it says, He who has no money, come. So you get kind of jolted when you get to verse 2 and he says, why you spend your money? And you say, what money? I don't have any money. You just said I didn't have any money. And so I conclude there's another kind of person here. Why do you spend your money for that which isn't bread and your labor for that which doesn't satisfy? Now, who is this? Who's this person in verse 2? Well, this person's thirsty But he thinks he's not broke yet. He's got money, and so he can buy. And he's got strength, and so he can work. And so he does. He keeps right on working and right on buying. Working, dreaming, chasing, searching, experimenting, spending. Result? Nothing. Frustration. I got bread. It's gone. No bread or moldy. I work hard. I got to the top. Where's all that happiness? It's gone. Boring. So you try again. New job. New city. Different car. Different house. Different wife. New computer. New boat. New books. New bike. New grill. New season tickets. New diet. New looks. 
didn't work. It didn't work again. So there is in this person here thirst, just like in the first person. So I really got one category in a sense. A thirsty person who's broke and desperate, thirsty. And here's a thirsty person who's got a lot of resources left inside and keeps on using them. Going, going, and going, and going. And again and again, dead end street. And finally, the options are getting fewer and the years are getting shorter. So maybe you're in that category this morning. You don't feel real desperate. In fact, you've got some plans. But you've got a long enough track record to know nothing yet has satisfied. Nothing looks like it's going to fulfill my craving soul forever. So maybe this morning the Lord will just make you realize it won't. And then you'll hear the invitation. So you're invited. So you're invited if you're broke and thirsty, and you're invited if you're resourceful and thirsty this morning. So that's my answer to the first question. Two kinds of people, thirsty and broke, and thirsty and trying not to admit that you're broke. Second question. What are we offered in this invitation? Now, I think the answer to that question is given in three stages. One, verse one, verse two, and verse three. And the first stage of the answer is an image. It's a metaphor. It's a picture. Snapshot of something. The second stage of the answer in verse two is a description of the quality and quantity of that image. And then the third stage of the answer in verse three strips the image away and lays the reality before us of what he's talking about in the imagery. Let's take those one at a time and I'll, I'll try to show you what I mean. Verse 1, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk, without money and without price. There's the picture. What you get when you come to God is three things. Water, milk, and wine. So we need to ask, what does that mean? Now, just think about those three beverages for a moment. They're very different. They correspond in your life to very different needs. I don't think this is an accident. I think this is very intentional to meet your needs. Water. When do you most desperately need water? When you're about dead in Death Valley. If you were on the brink of dehydration, you don't want milk. You don't want wine. You'd probably choke on milk. Yuck. When you're thirsty, you want water. So water corresponds to the need of refreshment, reinvigoration, life, uh, awakening, recovery, resurrection. Water corresponds to that first basic need of life. What about milk? Milk is, is like, uh, if you got a baby, milk is what it takes to make the baby grow. Now, milk, I think, in, in Old Testament times, wasn't drunk by adults, basically. Hardly any country in the world except America drinks milk by adults. Only babies drink milk. So I'm thinking of, of if this baby's going to grow, you better not give it only water. 
He's got to have milk or he won't grow. His bones will get brittle. He'll, he'll get all sick. And so milk corresponds not to that desperate, uh, starving in the, in the wilderness that all the adults felt. Milk corresponds to growth and ongoing stability and strength. And you have a need for that, don't you? Once, once your desperation is satisfied and you're sort of up and running in life, look, it takes a long haul. To finish with God, doesn't it? God is not just for desperations and for high mountains. He's for the long haul of stability and strength. And I think milk corresponds to that need. What about wine? Wine corresponds to the need for exhilaration in life. Now, I don't care how many of you think you are stoical or unemotional or phlegmatic or laid-back or poker-faced or I'll avoid all ethnic slurs, almost. There are a lot of people who say, that's the way I am, and so I don't have exhilaration in my life. Look, um, there is a little child in every one of you. It might be starved to death by personality traits and cultural expectations and family histories and whatnot, but it's there. And I believe there is a need for exhilaration. It may not be met in this life for some of you. You're so hampered by an inherited personality. But it'll come. When Jesus comes back, that little child is going to come to life. There's something inside every person that's made to play and jump and run and dance and skip and sing and laugh. And if you don't have it, there's something missing. You feel it's missing. That's why it's good to be with certain people where you see, see where you feel free. You know, cross-generational lines are interesting. I watched this happening. Um, the older group in this church, when they're with the younger group, I'm so right in the middle. They're very staid and formal and fulfill all the mature expectations they're supposed to. But I've watched some of these people when they're just by themselves. And they're really quite free and childlike and open and fun, too. And I told a story that I think I've mentioned before in this church, and I know they don't mind, so I'll use their names. Virgil Olson uh, was the dean of Bethel College when I came in 1974. And uh, he's been uh, in world missions, uh, leadership in the conference, and was the president of William Carey University, and, and uh, now is retired and speaks all around. Well, they invited us over to their house, about two, uh, I think about six uh, people, three new faculty couples. And before the evening was over, we were talking about pets. And suddenly, there was uh, Mrs. Dean, Mrs. Virgil Olson, on her hands and knees, on a rug, in the living room, woofing like a dog to illustrate this dog that they once had. And here I was, a new faculty member saying, the dean's wife is on the floor, woofing like a dog. And I just thought, this is tremendous. I've loved them ever since. They are so free. The little child inside the Olsons is free. It's alive and well, like it ought to be, in you and me, too. 
And my point here is that wine, which sadly in our culture wrecks lives, will in its spiritual sense, will in the age to come, when we drink it, make us exhilarated with all of our faculties. We won't kill anybody on the road. We won't get soused. We won't break up marriages. Because it won't do any of that. Was never intended to do any of that, which is why I'm a teetotaler, by the way. Here, but I expect to be utterly exhilarated with my eyes on fire with the wine of God someday, and you can have it in measure now in His fellowship. Now that's verse one, the imagery that we are offered when we come to God. Verse two describes the quality and the quantity of water, milk, and wine. This is my interpretation anyway. See if you think. Hearken diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in fatness. Good corresponds to the quality of these things we're offered. Fatness corresponds to the quantity of these things. What he's saying is, when you come, there will be the best water, milk, and wine, and there will be plenty of it. It'll never, ever, ever run out. Psalm 65, 11 says, speaking to God, You crown the year with your bounty, the tracks of your chariot drip with fatness. That's why I think fatness means bounty. That chariot of God is so full of honey, so full of wine, so full of grapes, so full of, what do you like? Ice cream, popcorn, spaghetti, pizza. It's so full, it's just dripping everywhere. I think fatness here means abundance. So verse 2 says, eat and it'll be the best you've ever eaten. Eat. And it'll never run out on you. It'll never let you down. The quality is so good, you don't get tired of it. And the quantity is so high, you don't run out of it. That's the way God is. And then verse 3 strips away the picture and just gives us the reality. Incline your ear and come to me. Me. Hear that your soul may live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. And I circled in my text, me, covenant, love. Notice, in verse 1 it said, come to the waters. In verse 3 it says, come to me. My inference is that God is the water, the milk, and the wine. God is water. So Jesus said, come to me, drink, you'll never thirst again. He is milk and He is wine. We're not talking about things. We're talking about fellowship with a living being. We can be more specific. Take the word covenant. He says, for those who accept His invitation and come, He'll make a covenant with them. What kind of covenant? A covenant like the one He made with David in 2 Samuel 7. And then He uses words to describe it. Uh, the RSV says, steadfast, sure love. You could translate it, um, mercies that will be faithful forever. 
Never run out on you. You could use Psalm 23 at the end to describe this. His goodness and mercy will follow you or pursue you all the days of your life. The covenant of God is a promise. You come, you accept this invitation, and He strikes a covenant, cuts a covenant, it says in the Hebrew. He cuts a covenant with you, and the pledge and the oath that He takes is, I will love you forever. I will never stop loving you. Now that, I tell you, is water to a thirsty soul. It is milk to a weak heart. And it is wine to sagging faces. God's covenant love gets you up in the morning, gets you out of the desert when you're in the desert, makes you strong when you're wavering, gives fire to your eyes when you're starting to grow dull. This is not a picture anymore. This is God present, loving, in covenant faithfulness to you. That's my answer to the question, what are we offered when we come? Now, last practical question. What are we instructed to do in this text when, uh, in order to have these benefits? Well, twelve things. <laughs> there are twelve commandments in this text. We could call them the twelve commandments. I don't know how you resound with or respond to the word commandments, but things like uh, eat your dessert or uh, go play in the pool when it's 102. Commandments like that, you know. Leave the service quickly and go outside and take off your coat. That's, that, that's the kind of commandment we've got here. Let me read the text with you, and I will number each of those twelve things. So you can see where they are. And then we'll try to make sense out of them and see what's being really asked of us here. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, number one. And he who has no money, come, number two. And buy, number three. And eat, number four. Come, five. Buy wine and milk, six. Without money and without price, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Hearken diligently to me, that's number seven. Eat what is good, number eight. And delight yourselves in fatness, number nine. Incline your ear, number ten. Come to me, number eleven. Hear, number twelve, that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. Twelve commandments. Now, we can't handle twelve commandments. That's too many. Too many to process. So, there are a lot of repetitions, right? We can boil these down in a wonderful way. Let me put them in two categories for you and close by applying them to you. First category is the, is the command, hear. Hearken diligently and incline your ear and hear. Three times. And so, what I want to say to you as we close is, are you listening to God this morning, right now? I know you have to be fanning. It takes a little loosening up in a service like this. Hard to be attentive. But as we close, this is real serious. God says to you right now, listen. I like the way you're leaning in. Some of you clearly listen with your bodies. Others kind of... I don't know whether you're listening at all. But what matters is, on the inside, are you doing this? Or are you doing this? Inside. doesn't matter so much on the outside. And God says this is so important. When He says... Hearken diligently. It's like hearing, hear, hear, hear. And when he says lean your ear in, it's, it's like this. Get close. You know, if you're hard of hearing and this thing is the uh, microphone, which you put your ear like this. Put your ear into it. 
That's what you should do at a sermon. Right now, as I finish, the Lord is saying to you, lean in to this preacher's words. Okay? Now, the second category of commandments is four things. And there's a progress. Every one of you is on this progress line somewhere. Let me give you the progress. I'm just going to bunch all the repetitions together, and here's what I get. You are asked to come, buy, eat, and delight yourself. Now, let's just take those one at a time as we close, and I'll ask where you are. Come. Come. Who's he talking to when he says come? There's a person who's at a distance. The fountain is here, the banquet is here, and you're there. And he says, come. That's unbelievers or maybe some really straying believers. It's far out. And he says this morning, get on your spiritual feet and start walking, even as this preacher is talking. Second step, buy. B-U-Y. This is a strange transaction. How you buy without money? Come, buy without money. Buy wine and milk without money and without price. You know, somebody might say, well, I don't have any money, but i got strength. I'll work for this money and wine. And he says, no, no price. P-R-I-C-E. You can't get it with your effort or your resources. Well, then you ask, why do you say buy? Any ideas? I don't know. Except this. It sure stopped me in my tracks and made me think. Could it be just a radical way of saying, buy it, and there is no price to pay? It makes everybody stop and think. And maybe think back to Isaiah 53. Somebody bought it. There was a purchase. And so you buy it when you can't buy it, but it was bought by somebody means trust Him. So by, here you are, you've come. Maybe in the last 30 seconds, you've walked right up to this banquet and you're standing there and kind of analyzing it. You've never gotten this close before. And you hear the word, now buy. And you say, I can't buy, I don't have anything. You said I was broke. And now you understand, he means just take it. Reach down and take it. Here's water. This is a glass of water. You take it. And you hold it in your hand. And now you've got it. You've bought it. You start out of the store and nobody can haul it. You say, hey, you didn't pay for that. You can say, well, he told me to just take it. And, and somebody bought it. And so you're out of the store now and you've got this in your hand. Step number three, eat or drink. There's so many people who seem to make, make decisions for Jesus. You know, they, they do some kind of transaction with God and then they walk out and they've got this, they got this banquet in their hands, this water and milk and wine, but they don't ever seem to savor it. To eat it. So I commend to you, if you're that close, if you've, if you've had a transaction with God, if you've believed, cast your life on Him, now eat, eat. And the fourth thing is just so closely tied, I don't know how to separate it from the third, enjoy. Delight yourselves in fatness, verse 2. Delight yourselves. And so I simply close by saying, where are you on that continuum this morning? And wherever you are, I speak for the staff now, and I'm sure I speak for the deacons, we would love it if you need somebody to talk to you more about how to get from here to there to there to there. If you want somebody to pray with you about some problem that's obstructing your progress in this 
uh, eating of God and enjoying Him, we're ready. So please, feel free to seek us out. I'd like you to pray with me as we close. Lord God, Majesty Divine, come now inviting God and make, I pray, Your Word heard by every person in this room. And may You grant that we would dine upon Your water, milk, and wine. And all the people said, Amen.